Hey there, and welcome back to Scopophilia. We are the millennial movie movement. And of course, I am your host, Becky Teller, here for the summer. And we are doing a special summer sessions here on Scopophilia. It's a little different. It's a little new. But I needed to put something out because I miss you guys and I miss doing the show. I've had about a month of vacation and that was enough and now I need to get back to work and you need more content. So I am here to give that to you. So what does that mean for our summer shows? Well, our summer shows are a little different. They're a little shorter. They're a little lighter and they're a little more intellectual, a little more behind the scenes. It's, it's a lot of fun. Trust me. But we're doing uh, one episode split into two parts uh, to keep it kind of light and to really go in-depth about different areas of film, different areas of how to make film and create film, which I got to tell you, that was one of my favorite things on the special features of like my DVDs when I was a kid. So I was pumped to sit down with all of these people. Such a great time. And I hope that you guys learn a little something along the way too. Now, of course, we'll be going back to our regularly scheduled program for season three coming in September. So very exciting stuff. We are working on it as I am making this episode and getting things ready. So to start this whole thing off, I'm going to be starting with an interview that I did with Everett Burrell in, I think, November of 2020 when things were still pretty pandemic heavy. Now things are getting a little bit lifted, a little bit safer, which is always very exciting. But let me tell you, Everett is a special effects artist, a visual effects artist, and his credit list is outstanding. He's worked on the Blade movies. He's worked on Hellboy. He's worked on Pan's Labyrinth with Guillermo del Toro, of course. And most recently, he has been working on The Umbrella Academy on Netflix, which is amazing if you have not seen it already. Uh, his work is extensive and impressive, and I honestly had no idea what kind of work went into this or really anything about the world of visual effects. Uh, it's a pretty foreign concept to me, if I'm being honest, but it was such a great time talking with him about what he does and and really getting an idea of, you know, what it takes to be on set and and doing these effects in, you know, different times, what it was like in the 90s versus now, the 2000s versus now. So I'll stop talking. <laughs> and I hope that you enjoy the first part of my interview with Everett Burrell, visual effects artist. Enjoy! Scopophilia. It's the newest thing to hit the market. Defined as deriving aesthetic pleasure from looking at something, it's the new craze sweeping the nation. Taken in large doses, Side effects can include an addictive nature to have more film content. If this increase occurs, consult no one and keep listening. Hey there, Scopophiliacs, and welcome back to another episode of Scopophilia, the podcast. And I'm very excited because we have a very special guest, Everett Burrell, on the show. Say hi to everybody. Hi, everybody. 
<laughs> and so for the listeners at home, um, explain to them what you do for a living. I am a uh, currently special visual effects supervisor, producer, and second unit director on a Netflix TV series called The Umbrella Academy. Amazing. And uh, so you just finished season two. And how, I mean, what's what's that experience like being on a show that I think is kind of a household name now, right? Um, yeah, no, it's been an uh, unbelievable journey. Uh, we have, uh, we were a number one Netflix show for quite a few months in the summer. Um, we've been real popular across the world. Uh, Netflix is very, very happy. I'm you know, <laughs> pretty much guaranteed. I, I think we'll see a third season. Uh there's no official announcement, but I'm sure there will be one probably the next month or so. Uh, no, it's been really remarkable. I mean, Netflix treats us great, uh, gives us a lot of creative freedom. Uh, we have a fantastic crew, uh, both in Toronto and Los Angeles. We shoot the show in Toronto, uh, but we do all the post-production here in, in Los Angeles. Amazing. And so you do um, the visual effects. And so what what exactly does that entail uh, in terms to like what we might have seen on the screen. So, you know, I brought in very early on to work with Steve Blackman, who is our showrunner and a showrunner is, is the executive producer and writer um, of a TV series. And, you know, it's a little different than feature films where, you know, the script is there and then it goes away um, <laughs> at some point. Uh, so on a feature film, you know, the writer is, you know, does several drafts of a script. It gets picked up. It's given to the director. And then the director is king. On a TV series, the showrunner is king, so to speak. And mm-hmm. that really, you know, he has a lot of the creative control and, and, and certainly in this say and how the show is developed and the tone. Um, so I work very closely with Steve. And then as each director comes on board, I work very close with them. Because there's a lot of parameters we really have to sort of uh, uh, kind of manage and stay under. And, you know, part of it is schedule, part of it is budget, mm-hmm. part, part of it is just overall tone. And so, you know, my job is to really keep everybody informed, uh, be positive, uh, not say no all the time, <laughs> but at the same time, you know, try to really... Uh, make people understand that we just don't have, you know, unlimited funds. Um, you know, some shows do, <laughs> but we're not one of them. Uh, and we just really try to create, you know, a really fun show for everyone to really uh, uh, understand and, and, and have a good time and, you know, enjoy some creative freedom. But at the same time, uh, you got to play within the sandbox we built. Absolutely. Well, I mean, the show is amazing. I mean, that's, that's kind of the, the most blunt thing I can say about it is that it's, it's simply incredible. And and what you guys are doing over there is amazing. And I am always, I've devoured season one and two. I think I've watched season one, three times. I mean, there is definitely something very fun and interesting going on over there. And I always watch it thinking this must be so much fun to kind of collaborate with everybody here. Um, is that true? Is it is it a fun set to work on? Yeah, no, it is. It, it, you know, we have a great cast. They're a lot of fun. Um, you know, we have a f- fantastic crew. Our, our director's photography, Neville Kidd and Craig Robleski, 
are uh, just dynamite. Um, you know, everybody in Toronto is lovely and really good attitude. But, you know, we work long hours and mm-hmm. you know, with all the new COVID restrictions, it's going to change things up quite a bit. But, uh, you know, we have a lot of fun in the, in the you know, sort of what we call the writer's room and the director's room, you know, planning and storyboarding and pre-vising and, you know, in prep, it's sort of the pie in the sky, you know, anything is possible. And those mm-hmm. are the real fun times. And then the, <laughs> the not so fun times is that the reality is, you know, financial, you know, financial, we have realities we have to stick to. And, you know, as much as I'd love to have a giant alien spaceship, you know, land and kill everybody, <laughs> we can't afford to do that kind of thing. Right. So, you know, right. being responsible, but being creative, you know, with the money we have and, and the time and, and trying to, you know, do some really interesting things like Pogo was a real big leap of faith for, for, uh, you know, the whole show and everybody involved um, because uh, no one's ever done like a CG character on TV budget like that before. Yeah. So getting yeah. Weta involved was really, really important and having them part of the team, you know, early on was super important and, and getting them to, to work with us. And we gave them a lot of room, you know, creatively because we know, you know, part of the, things we, we couldn't normally afford Weta. So the right sort of deal we had with them is we gave them some creative freedom, which they don't usually have. Sometimes there's an old saying in Hollywood, uh, once a butler, always a butler. And meaning that, you know, when you just get stuck in doing one thing and you don't have any creative freedom or any creative say, you know, you're stuck in that, that sort of like, you know, clean up someone else's mess all the time. Mm-hmm. And I didn't want that relationship with Weta. I, want, I wanted Weta to bring their A game, uh, but as a partner, not as, not as a butler. Right. Right. Well, so, I mean, you you are talking about, um, like, the difference between, like, TV and film. And so working on Umbrella Academy, which is a Netflix original, and I have also seen on your credit list, you've also worked on Westworld a little bit. And so how, like, do they differ? in any way, just like from a professional standpoint of whether it's like financial or, um, or like crew wise, is there like a difference between which, um, like TV place you're with? If I'm saying that correctly, forgive me. (laughs) Yeah, no, Westworld, I worked on the pilot of Westworld and that was very unusual where, you know, they'd shot a lot of it and in post, I think they realized that they wanted to go back and change some things, uh, including some cast members were replaced. Okay. And, uh, and they had a, a tremendous amount of money on, on that show, um, more than we ever have on, on our I, w- <laughs> <laughs> they, I would think so, yeah. yeah and Jonah Nolan, you know, he's a great guy, and, and, and I, you know, that I, I have much respect for that team. But, uh, you know, there's a thing called the money hose, and they, they definitely were able to turn it on <laughs> when they needed it. <laughs> Uh, to fix a lot of the problems, but uh, yeah, it's a great looking show. Uh, Jay Worth, the the soup, is a friend of mine, and and I, you know, I, I respect those guys. You know, we're always competing against each other for awards, so <laughs> kind of fun to see them. But uh, yeah, no, it's you know, Netflix has a much, um, much more, I guess, tighter policy on uh, on budgets. Like if you're mm-hmm. in a certain category. Um, you have to really stay in that category of your, of your budget. Whereas HBO, you know, they're the, they're the gold standard 
for TV. And I think they have a little bit more wiggle room when it comes mm-hmm. to their you know, HBO epics. You know, Game of Thrones, obviously, and then oh, know, yeah. Westworld. Yeah, yeah. I've, I mean, yeah, I, I mean, yeah. I was just curious in terms, because, like, you look at shows like Game of Thrones and 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 Westworld, and they definitely, like, you can see there is a lot going on, and you have to imagine, you know, how much does this probably cost? But, I mean, from just, like, a viewer standpoint, even, I mean, you can kind of tell the difference, I guess, production-wise between something like Umbrella Academy and those HBO shows, but I feel like the experience is very similar, and like you get sucked in, and I don't know if that's a testament to just like how they're made and like the people behind it or something, but yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, no, I mean, I think look, <laughs> words are cheap to write right. down, <laughs> 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 but uh, you know, Game of Thrones had like ten, you know, eight seasons, whatever, you know, of mm-hmm. history and and great ratings, and you know, they had a. Had a, a long time to build that world up. We're still building ours. You know, we've only had two seasons behind us. Right. So we're still, and you know, we're a time travel show. So, you know, we hip hop around a lot of places and a lot of different time periods. So it's, you know, that has its own challenges as well. Last season took place all in 1963 mm-hmm. in Dallas. And, uh, you know, we shoot the show in Toronto. So I had to make Toronto look like Dallas. <laughs> and uh, that you know that was a challenge because every time you go outside to shoot, you know there was something out there that wasn't legitimate, um, you know Dallas looking, period looking either vehicles or buildings that all had to be painted mm-hmm. out and tweaked, and so right. it was it was a much more complicated season from the cleanup uh, sort of aspect and the locations. We did go, we spent a few days in Dallas where I was able to direct some second unit stuff in Dealey Plaza. And that was, you know, I had a great time. That was a lot of fun. Um, but again, it was only a couple of days that I had to get all that footage. Right. To then pepper it across, to, uh, you know, season, the last few episodes of, of last season. So, you know, it's it's always, you know, every series or every show has its challenges. Some of them are location, budget, schedule. I mean, they're they're all really complicated. A lot of moving pieces. There's a lot of great people behind the scenes making things happen. Right, right. Well, and so I look at your credit list, which you sent to me, and I feel like there's like a semi-theme with a lot of the films that you're involved in. There's, I mean, you've got Blade, there's Xena is on here, Hellboy, um, Warm Bodies is on here, Sin City, Pan's Labyrinth. Like, there's a lot of kind of like sci-fi, supernatural films. Is that is that something that it that you're interested in? That you like? That's what you kind of specialize in. You would say, or is that just something that you're more drawn to? Oh, yeah, of course, I'm a huge horror, sci-fi, fantasy <laughs> nerd, um, beyond belief, and 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 have been since I was very very little very young age, you know, Victoria mm-hmm. and Cinefantastic Magazine and Famous Monsters. And I watched every horror film I get my hands on, you know, my office here in, in here in Encino is I got my creep show poster, the thing, Valley of the Guanji, Dawn of the Dead. You know, I'm, I'm a huge collector as well. So no, I love horror films and, and I had the great honor of working with George Romero a few times. And a lot of my, you know, people that I grew up on, you know, really worshiping 
I was able to work with. And that was an honor. Amazing. And so I, you gave me your credit list and you had said you were nice enough to say, you know, pick something and we'll just have a discussion about it. So I picked Blade because it's it's a personal favorite of mine. <laughs> and um, so could you tell me a little bit about what it was like and what your your portion of that film was? And Yeah, no, it's, it's an odd story. Um, Blade yeah. was, you know, it was directed by Stephen Norrington who mm-hmm. I kind of known of through the makeup effects world. Steve was a makeup effects designer and animatronic builder in London. And I, you know, I had friends that worked on, you know, I worked on aliens, um, built stuff in, here in the States and we would ship it to London. Um, I didn't get to go to London, but Steve was on that crew. And that's where he met Alec Gillis and Tom Woodruff and Rick Lazzarini and all those guys who, who work on aliens in London. And, you know, heard, you know, what a, what a good guy he was and what a smart guy he was. So, you know, he, he'd done a, a, a small low budget movie, I think called death machine. Mm-hmm. And then, uh, that went real well, I think in film festivals and, you know, he got blade. I, I wasn't aware of blade until after they had shot it and they went in for a test screening. I guess the test screen didn't go so well. And they were about to do some reshoots and rewrites. And that's when I was brought on by a friend of mine who was working on the film and the visual effects department um, to see if we could help uh, do some tests for what we call the ashings. It's when the vampires get, you know, either stabbed with silver or shot with silver or garlic and, and their bodies sort of disintegrate. Right, they had right. hired a, uh, a medical imaging company who had never done visual effects before. <laughs> but they, um, they, you know, they had an interesting technology that they were trying to, you know, use this medical technology in, in film land. And, and they're just two different worlds. The movie world mm-hmm. is, is very unique in terms of, you know, we're very deadline driven. We don't have, you know, 15 years to research a piece of software, you know, we're kind of mm-hmm. making it up as we go. So we had done some tests. I was at a company called flat earth at the time. Um, and we really did a couple fun tests that Steve Norrington really liked. And because of those tests, we were able to get, uh, you know, a lot of the ashings and a, a few you know, chunks of the film. And then as other VFX companies either dropped out or Steve wasn't happy with, you know, we'd get more and more shots. So it was, you know, kind of awkward taking over for other companies. That's never fun. Right. But, uh, and then, you know, Steve was, a, he's a taskmaster. He, he wants stuff perfect. And, you know, it was very, the early infancy of CG. Right. So a lot of things he wanted to do just didn't exist yet in terms <laughs> of software or, or techniques. So we had to really pull, you know, kind of rabbits out of our butt, so to speak, to, to make these things happen. Um, we used a lot of different techniques and ideas and, and work closely with him to, to, you know, get him happy. But, you know, then the whole Lamagra blood monster thing at the end. Right. That was a whole big mess that we weren't involved in that per se, but, um, and there was just a a ton of effects. I think Steve was so ahead of his time. I mean, to his credit, he really Mm -hmm. was trying to do things that just weren't possible at that time. Um, So he had to, he had to compromise there's some great miniatures in there that VIFX did, and they were really phenomenal. 
but uh, yeah, no, it was a, it was a, it was a struggle <laughs> to get that stuff done. <laughs> um, but you know, again, I, it, you know, I made me have a friendship with Steve, which I really, to this day, you know, I, I think the world of Steven, he's, he's a phenomenal artist. Um, I just think, uh, you know, Hollywood, uh, you know, you kind of can chew you up and spit you out a little bit. And I think, I think Steve got chewed up a bit on the uh, league of extraordinary gentlemen. Mm-hmm. Um, but I see him occasionally and, uh, you know, I know he's working on some fun stuff here and there, but I think blade for me, you know, it, it's, it blows my mind how people forget about that was the first Marvel film that did anything right? Um, with an African-American lead superhero. It's, you yes. know, it's, you know, people just, you know, kind of forget about the Blade movies, which I, I find kind of weird. Uh, my guess is they'll be, he'll be brought back in the future Marvel films is my guess. But uh, I really liked the first Blade. I thought it looked great. Um, great score. It was shot great. Uh, it just, the stunts were phenomenal. Um, there's a lot of great stuff in the movie that I, I really, really like. Absolutely. Well, and it's so funny that you say that because I, so I, I just finished watching the movie like maybe an hour ago, just like refreshed myself because it had been a while. And, um, and I, I had the same thought of like, this is a Marvel movie with an African-American lead who is getting things done. And I, it, like, I, it kind of blows my mind that people don't talk about this movie much anymore. And I do know that Marvel is planning on bringing him back without Wesley Snipes. Um, with somebody else whose name I cannot remember at the moment. Um, but it's going to be interesting to see, especially like in the wake of Black Panther, how Blade is going to go and and will that be as defining as, as, as Black Panther was. But I think Blade is such an interesting movie because you're right. It's, it's an interesting story. It's diverse and the score is really amazing. It has that iconic blood scene at the rave in the beginning. I mean, it, it, there's not much that gets better than that. <laughs> yeah. Club blood, I thought was uh really, I mean, again, you know, I, I'd seen, I'm like, I have them anymore. I had a VHS copy of the rough cut and oh. uh, that's how, you know, we got involved. Uh-huh. Uh, we watched that and back, you know, when they didn't give a shit about security, <laughs> 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 but, um, yeah, I remember watching that scene thinking how, how amazingly cool it was. Um, I did hear a really weird story about that scene. I guess when they built that stage and they had the blood sprinklers, I think to save money, um, they would recycle the blood that went on the ground into these vents and pump it back up. So that what? means that all that blood was like oozing down people's sweaty skin. <laughs> and so I think people got sick and I think probably a few lawsuits over that, but, uh, yeah, no, that was not a good idea to, to do that. <laughs> um, but it's amazing scene. And I, I think the film has a really unique look and, uh, yeah, no, I, I think it's, to me, it still holds up. I didn't work on blade two, but I did work on blade three. Um, and, right. uh, I think, I think I like the first one still my favorite. Fair. Yeah, I mean, and it it it's interesting because it has kind of like a grittiness to it that kind of reminded me of the feel that like Seven had, and then it has elements that like are kind of a blueprint towards Matrix. If that like, do you see that at all? Is that just me? <laughs> no, you know, in terms of the action and stuff, for sure. Um, 
you know, I, it's, you know, Steve had a really good take on, on the photography and the handheld action of it all. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the leather and the sunglasses and all that stuff. It definitely right. has that, uh, you know, nineties kind of vibe, but right. uh, yeah, no, I, I think it's way ahead of its time. I think Steve's, you know, was really onto something with that. Uh, there's some great stuff in it. I like the Deacon Frost character. I mean, I, I, yeah. I like all the characters. I think they're really, really interesting. And in, in the take on the vampire and, and, uh, you know, I'm really curious to see Morbius, you know, when it comes out. Because, you know, Morbius and Blade were kind of linked in the comics. Mm-hmm. I wonder if uh, Blade will make an appearance in Morbius. Yeah, we'll see. I mean, I think it's going to be very interesting to see what the new Blade will be in comparison to this old Blade. Because this old Blade is kind of, like I said, a little gritty, um, very 90s, um, which I don't find a bad thing in that, but that's just me. <laughs> um, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, it's it's interesting. And I think nowadays we are, we're so saturated with vampire content. I mean, you can find every kind of vampire imaginable. And so it's it's kind of fun to go back and, and watch this version of it. Um, because I think it was still like a decently new thought process, especially like in this mindset of like a hybrid human vampire. Yeah. You no, know? The, the day Walker concept. No, for sure. Um, yeah. No, it, it conceptually there's a lot of great stuff. I mean, David Goyer did a nice script on that. And there's some, again, there's some really interesting things that, you know, the, they got this sort of business model for vampires. They're like a corporation. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they have information of hard drives and, you know, where the vampires are and keeping a database. I think that's really smart. Yeah, there's a lot of really good stuff in that film. Yeah, absolutely. And, um, oh, I just had a thought. It was, nope, it's gone. But <laughs> <laughs> this is a great film. I'm trying, to, I'm trying to think about some other fun facts of Blade that I, I can remember. Um, his car in Blade, I... <laughs> I wanted to buy that car so bad. I, I, I asked Steve, um, I think it was in a warehouse somewhere. It was pretty beat up. I really, I was trying to buy it. I remember uh, you know, trying to make that deal and right. the deal ultimately just fell through, but yeah, no, I really wanted that. I wanted Blade's car really bad. It's but a great yeah, car. And it's shot in LA. It's got a really neat look and, and you know, I don't shoot movies in LA anymore. Yeah, that's true. I mean, and it's it's such like an iconic car, right? It's like that fifties muscle feel to it in a nineties movie, which I think is just <laughs> aesthetically pleasing for some reason. Yeah, no, definitely. It was a Dodge Charger, if I remember correctly. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, no, it's mm-hmm. it's in I think all the production design and stuff was really great. I think uh I was talking to I think during the premiere party, uh, which I think was in Westwood. Uh, we were having drinks beforehand. I was talking to the production designer. And there's a great scene where I think it's the like the vampire like server room where it's like rows and rows of computers. Right, right. And uh you know, Steve wanted blinky red lights on all the machines to simulate, you know, the hard drives are being active, right? They're they're spinning. Right. And he would go through and, and Steve would check to make sure all the red lights were blinking and the production designer would, as Steve did it, he'd go behind him and replace a couple of them with green lights. Just <laughs> to piss with Steve. 
<laughs> so then Steve would see dailies go, you know, I checked all those lights that were red. How did, how did a green one get in there? <laughs> I just thought that was funny. Just to screw with Steve a little bit. <laughs> That's so but, funny. Yeah. No, well, you know, he's a pretty detailed guy. So, but yeah, again, you know, it was, it was a hard show. It was, a, you know, a lot of recutting and, and, mm-hmm. you know, music temps and, you know, Steve, it was, it was, I think it was really hard on Steve, you know, dealing with the Hollywood system and, and it was a new line movie. So it wasn't like it was, you know, you know, the huge studio, but I think it was just a, uh, a warning sign to Steve of things to come. Mm. This has been episode one of our summer session, part one with our special guest, Everett Burrell. How do you like that? That was my NPR voice because this kind of feels like an NPR special, which I'm always a fan of. But I don't know. You guys let me know what you think. Of course, we will be uploading part two of this interview next week. Same time, same place where we will continue our conversation with Everett Burrell about visual special effects, artistry, and all of those good things about being on these sets and working on these amazing films and TV shows that he has been a part of. So stay tuned for that. If you liked this show and you just want more, you have a couple options as always. You can follow us on Instagram or TikTok. Our Instagram is at scopophilia underscore podcast, and our TikTok is at Scopophilia Podcast. As always, if you liked the show, don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe because it helps us out a lot. And also don't forget to tell your friends and your family and your family of friends and your friends of family about the show. We love talking to you. I hope that you like talking to me too. And I hope that you're enjoying this, you know, exploration of the behind the scenes because I know I am. As always, I'm your host, Becky Teller, leading the millennial movie movement here on Scopophilia. And I will see you next week to continue our summer sessions. Bye.